today on Ag News Daily. You know, 1.5 billion is helpful, but it's still a 2.2 billion bushel carryout if you use the outlook numbers from the USDA. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Hashtag Market Monday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, sponsored by our partners at agmarket.net. Delaney Howell here, joined by Mike Pearson, who is back from Commodity Classic. I am Delaney. I tell you what, I had a fantastic week down there talking with growers from across the country and speaking with people, catching back up. I mean, it was it was just a really good time. A lot of a uh, lot of interesting things were on display, and I think we can certainly say that uh, it was a success. And all in all, I've got to say that growers were more optimistic than I was anticipating. Well, that's good news. I'm I'm actually a little surprised by that as well. I figured folks would be thinking already that perhaps this year would be another cycle of last year repeating. Well, and I think last week in particular, there was a decent amount. I don't want to say that, that folks were leaping for the moon. There was definitely... Uh, a more somber approach than there was in like 2013 and 14 when people were like actually really excited about pricing. Last week's slide in the commodity markets definitely weighed on things, especially as it was coming at the end of crop insurance price reporting season, month of February, which we will get to with our good friend Angie Setzer here in the market segment for today's podcast. But Delaney, before we jump into that, we've got news happening in the world of agriculture, don't we? We certainly do, Mike. I want to kick things off today looking at the trade scene as usual. We chatted just a little bit last week about the UK moving forward with some sort of trade agreement or free trade agreement with the EU. And I think it might have been a day when you were out traveling down to San Antonio, but essentially they're looking at a free trade agreement, which the question then came to be, well, what happens between the UK and the US? Well, it seems that the UK and the US are still moving full steam ahead. We saw that the UK published a negotiating objectives program or paper, if you will, on Monday, basically outlining the free trade agreement points that they hope to achieve with the United States. And this is about a 184-page document, so I personally probably will not read through that, Mike. No, me but, either. <laughs> but the uh, this note is why be... we have interns, Delaney right. Madison Honcom, yeah. <laughs> great intern for Ag News Daily. Crack them books. The, the noteworthy piece here is that uh, agriculture does take a pretty good portion of that 184 pages as a focal point, and uh, key chocks are supposed to be. Again, here in the next several weeks, according to British government officials. All right. Okay, so now it's just wait and see. we got to actually see this thing move forward. The yeah, trade officials I, from both countries get together and, and actually start to hammer right. one out, so it's not just a wish list. And I assume that essentially this is what the U.K. put forward as their negotiating objectives. I assume the U.S. will put one together as well, and from there they'll use those two documents as a way to negotiate through a free trade agreement. You bet. you got to start with something, so that is positive to see that discussion get started. Any free trade agreement we can sign that really gets barriers removed to exporting American goods is a win for agriculture. Absolutely. Well, we've seen a win after a solid week of sell-offs in the equity markets. We don't talk a lot about the equity markets in the Ag News Daily podcast because they're not necessarily ag-related. However, today I felt like they were worth mentioning because the way the money has been flowing around the financial markets. The last week, we saw 
everybody terrified. Money was flowing out of equities. Usually at that point, it moves into safe havens, some of which could be commodities. But money came out of everything. Gold was down. Crude was down. Ags were down. Everything was down. Today, that trend is reversing. The uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average at the time we are recording is up 762 points, a little over a 3% move on the day. We're seeing ag commodities leap higher at the open, and then most of them have maintained it throughout the day. And we're starting to see folks buy the dip. That is the trade talk for when prices get so low that people look around and go, gosh, there must be value in here. And that's what we're seeing in equities. And it looks like we're starting to pull that money back into the world of trading, including agriculture. Just a quick fact for some of our listeners, if you haven't checked your 401k value, maybe give it a couple days until you do. Last week was the biggest weekly decline in uh, the equity markets since the 2008 financial crisis. That's what we saw last week. And now perhaps we're coming out of it, which should be good news for agriculture. That's crazy. I hadn't heard that, Mike. Right. Yeah, I, I didn't realize it was that severe. But yeah, it was a it was a definite definite mover for a lot of people's retirements. Hmm. Uh, yeah, <laughs> might have to work a couple extra years. Nah, not really in a couple extra yeah. years, but uh... yeah, yeah. I mean, if this thing turns around, boom, it can all be back in a week. But. Coronavirus is still out there, yes. creating headlines and adding risk. Yeah, I was looking at a map today of just all the countries confirmed now with with cases, and it's about 71 different countries. Of course, we do have it here in the United States. Knock on wood, we haven't seen a case reported in the, in the state of Iowa. But uh, as I was chatting last week with Dr. Linda Safe on the podcast, for those of you who haven't listened, I encourage you to go back. Just interesting stuff. But essentially, she said this type of coronavirus does have the possibility to, you know, go between species. And if we see it hit or infect another species, that's really going to be kind of the breaking point for it here. And uh, so last... Like if it were to jump into birds yep. or something, then yep. we should be really concerned. Right. And so I had a subscriber of our weekly newsletter email me last week because I spent some time chatting about this in the newsletter last week. And he essentially said that he's seen, and I need to verify this, but he said he's seen a coronavirus case that has just recently happened as reported in Hong Kong where a dog has caught this virus. And that is a kind of a turning point to the to the bad side, really, for this virus, if that is the case. So do we know? Did the dog's owner have it and then, like, coughed on his food? Well, I'm going to do some digging. I haven't been able to find this story or fact-check this story yet, but... Uh... I don't know. I, I guess that is the concern, right? That you as a human could infect your animals. Right. Yeah, that would not be uh, not be great news. And actually, here we go. I just pulled it up. It is confirmed by CNN today to saying that a pet dog has been placed in quarantine after it tested positive, but it was a very weak positive for the coronavirus. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on Fido, see what happens. <laughs> well, let's do that. You know, while we're speaking of diseases, a disease that has definitely moved to the back burner as coronavirus has spread but is still devastating is African swine fever. It has continued its impact. Uh, it's mitigating in China, but Southeast Asia is continuing to see it spread. And the American pork industry is rightfully concerned about what could happen 
if ASF were to strike on this side of the Pacific. And the National Pork Board went ahead and did some consumer research. They wanted to reach out, okay, what's consumer response going to be if we have African swine fever? Remember, those of us that know agriculture have talked about this disease, know that it is not transferable to humans. We have no risk at all from African swine fever, even though it is fatal for hogs. However, according to this survey done by the National Pork Board, more than half of consumers said they would stop eating pork if African swine fever was found in the U.S. So if it were to spread here, we could see something turn where hogs are dying right and left. And then rather than seeing the price skyrocket as the remaining hogs, you know, fight to fill that demand, we could see demand fall as well, and that would be catastrophic in the American pork industry. So uh, Bill Evan, who, or even, excuse me, who is the CEO of the National Pork Board, said, we do have millions of dollars set aside to fight this disease. We're going to continue to fight it at the borders so it doesn't come into our country. But then he says, quote, rest assured, there will be many millions of dollars at the ready should we ever have an event occur around foreign animal disease, African swine fever being the implied threat with that comment. Well, as you look at other protein threats, we discussed last week how the FSIS has raised suspension on Brazilian beef imports. And we saw that echoed by some pushback this week, a group of 15 bipartisan U.S. senators led by Republican John Thune of South Dakota have created a letter questioning the FSIS or the Food Safety and Inspection Service's decision to allow imports of raw Brazilian beef after three years. And they said they are very concerned about public health and poor sanitary conditions as well as animal health issues that are basically impacting the Brazilian beef source and didn't really necessarily call for specific action in the letter, but did say that they have serious concerns about Brazil's ability to maintain adequate food safety over the long run. And I think what it sounds like here is encouraging, if nothing else, the FSIS and USDA to re-examine that decision. Yeah, and I assume if we take a look at those 15 uh, senators that endorse this plan, all of them come from beef-producing states. That's where the concern really lies. Foot and mouth disease would be certainly, it wouldn't be catastrophic, but it would be catastrophic to certain producers. And why the USDA is pushing to reallow this is just weird. Um, I had a few conversations with folks from the USDA all off the record at Commodity Classic, and this was one of the issues I brought up. And uh, most of the folks I talked to were on the crop side, but they're all kind of plugged in, you know, around the water cooler. And they weren't sure either. Now, granted, these weren't, you know, the high level at USDA, but there wasn't apparently any push from Brazil necessarily to really increase the amount of raw beef shipped to this country. It just kind of came out of left field. They were like, oh, yeah, nah, that's fine now. So it was shocking, and I think we're going to get a lot more information on raw beef coming to the – raw Brazilian beef coming to the U.S., over the next few weeks, Delaney. Yes, I would agree with that as well. Hopefully we get a little more information about why that happened, too. Exactly. I mean, Brazil is making money hand over fist, selling their you know relatively cheap beef into China. I don't even know if they have any extra to sell into the American market. Mm-hmm. So why are we doing this? I'm sure, we'll, I'm sure it's political reasons. I hate to be cynical, but that's my guess. And I'm inclined to agree. So we'll just have to wait and see. 
we will. And Mike, speaking of political action, this is something that's fallen through our cracks just a little bit, but definitely something we should have been addressing on the podcast previously, and that's the Right to Farm Act. Indiana kind of serves as a precedent state right now, and just a few weeks ago on February 21st, we saw the Indiana Supreme Court denied transfer of the Himsel v. Himsel Right to Farm Act case. So essentially, this is good news for agriculture because it does not allow for those folks filing against agriculture to allow it to be appealed. And so this case that was decided on April of 2019 keeps the precedent in place, saying that they are indeed, the farming defendant is protected from the right, or protected by the Right to Farm Act. Okay. Okay. Well, good news, right? Yes, and it, it serves as a precedent, I believe, for other states. So essentially, going back, just to recap this case a little bit, because it's been quite some time since we talked about it, essentially the Right to Farm Act still protects farmers against nuisance suits. And so in this case in particular, we saw a hog farm that was just built, had quite a few neighbors essentially arguing that this was impeding their well-being, etc., etc., and this Right to Farm Act protected that farmer. So we saw the courts, the Indiana Supreme Courts here just a few weeks ago, indeed keep that case, keep the um, the opinion uh, issued in April. They kept that in place so it doesn't move on to another stage. Of course, we could still see them appeal this. Um, but I think this is good news. This is a win for agriculture. All right. Well, we need all the wins we can get, Delaney. we got some wins on the board today. Should we jump into market pricing before we have our conversation with Angie Setzer? Let's do it. All right, folks. A lot of green on the screen today. A reminder, our markets are brought to us by our friends at agmarkets.net. Get on there, check it out, and be sure to get in touch with them for any questions about managing your market risk. In the corn market, the May contract was up seven and three quarter cents to finish at excuse me, three seventy six even. The December contract up four cents at three eighty one even. In soybeans, the May contract up eight and a half at nine oh one and a quarter broke above that nine dollar psychological barrier. November new crop up nine and a half to finish at nine seventeen and three quarters. Chicago wheat well off the lows of the day but could not catch fire along with the rest of the grains. The May contract down one and a quarter at 523 and three quarters. December down one and three quarters to finish at 541 and three quarters. Looking over at the world of livestock, we've got again green on the screen in the cattle complex. April live cattle up 520, yeah, excuse me, 257.50 at 110.15. The June up 277.5 to close at 103.97.50. And in feeder cattle, the April contract up $2.35 at 135.05. May up 245, closing at 135.97.50. And mixed trade in lean hogs, the April contract was up 52.5 cents at 62.80, while the May was down a nickel to close at 68.97.5. Over in dairy, with that class 3 milk, the March contract was up 8 cents at 16.39. April up 12, closing the day at 16.29. With that, Delaney, let's kick it off and have a Market Monday conversation with our friend Angie Setzer. Well, we are joined by a familiar Twitter voice at Goddess of Grain, Angie Setzer, who is the VP of Citizens Elevator. Angie, how you doing today? I am good. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm not... Not caught the coronavirus yet, so I can't complain too much. 
you are winning. That's hashtag winning right there. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, in looking at the coronavirus, I mean, this continues to dominate the news cycle. We had really low trading sessions last week, not only in the ag commodities, but also in the equities markets. Angie, how much longer is this going to dominate the news cycle and more specifically impact the trade in commodities? Well, I'm going to start by saying I was completely wrong, you know, mid-January saying, oh, in a couple of weeks, we'll have our arms around this. We'll completely understand what's going on. It'll probably go away. You know, bird flu, SARS, all of these other things. And here we sit, you know, nearly two months later, still scratching our head over what everything means. So, I mean, obviously, I think there's going to be, you know, some long-term, likely considerable impacts when it comes to, you know, the economies around the world, especially if we do see a, a slowdown elsewhere cons- similar to what we saw in China with them, you know, basically having everyone stay home three to four weeks. You know, obviously air travel has been impacted and and everyone's really kind of looking at whether or not they even want to leave the house at this point. And so, you know, obviously I think that has a, a big impact, but I kind of jokingly, but still seriously tweeted there on Friday, you know, it's like they don't realize pandemics are like blizzards. You know, we still need milk, bread, eggs, and are going to hole up to home, you know? So the reality is, you know, we're we're still going to eat, we're still going to feed animals, you know, it could disrupt some of the supply line, or the, you know, the ability to ship elsewhere, you know, things of that nature. But eventually, once we get our arms around this, it's, you know, not necessarily overly negative um, to commodities, like some want to act like it was here a, a week or so ago. So I do think we saw, you know, the corn and, and bean market kind of get their legs underneath them today. Everything else seems to kind of be feeling a little bit better as well. So maybe we're we're beyond that fear trade and, and looking at what reality is going to be, you know, but I think we're still kind of uncertain over what that actually means and, and what is real when it comes to this disease and the concerns that we have. Yeah, but it, it is, I think, a big relief to see at least the edge coming off that fear trade. Big upward moves today across the board, well, with wheat being the only exception as it typically is. Corn and beans up big, hogs up, cattle up very large on the day. We're starting to see some positivity return. And Angie, let's talk this corn market right off the bat. Looking at the old crop corn market, we're on a rebound. How much higher can we go? What are you watching for this next target where growers really ought to be getting some sales in? I really watch and getting back up above that 385 to 390 level on the May. I think, you know, it's time to, it's important to kind of keep in mind that typically in a carry market, even ever so small, as we've seen the spreads really kind of completely shrink to nothing here recently, you know, I think 385, 390 on the May, it had been the high side on the March board here over the last couple months. And I think that'll be the next target, uh, you know, that my growers are looking at. Now, obviously, we're in a different area where basis has been exceptionally strong, you know, 40, 50 over delivered in. And so it, it results in some pretty significant cash pricing um, for my growers. So that's part of the reason that's our target. But I think from a, a trade perspective, from a fundamental perspective, you know, long-term wise, looking out in a new crop and looking out into, you know, what we have from a, a corn movement standpoint, you know, dying 15 cents is probably going to be, you know, a, a selling opportunity on the corn side. And Angie, you're uh, up there in Michigan, and since we've got you on, we haven't had you on for a little while, but uh, looking ahead at this quote-unquote resurvey of acres that the USDA could potentially do, I was on Twitter this weekend, and I can't remember who shared it, but it was a picture of a flyover, basically, of the Dakotas in Michigan and some of the fields that are still yet to be harvested. What do you make of this resurvey of acres? Is it going to do a lot to change our production numbers and or 
new crop or old crop prices? I don't really think so. I mean, I think that, you know, the reality is we could anticipate, we could, even if carryout were to drop to 1.5 billion on old crop. So let's say we pull, you know, nearly 400 million out of production, which is, is somewhat of an aggressive uh, reduction in production, I would say, after a resurvey. You know, 1.5 billion is helpful, but it's still a 2.2 billion bushel carryout if you use the outlook numbers from the USDA, you know, that were released there in February. Now, obviously, you have to take those with a grain of salt, but traders, you know, that's really what they're looking at and what they're, you know, putting a pencil to paper on when it comes to to overall production. So I I think even with an aggressive shift in in uh, stocks or something of that nature, you know, it's it's still going to be somewhat heavy overall, just with the idea that we are going to see this large amount of corn planted. Now, I think we've got about four weeks for beans really kind of to to have something to say about it. And I'm not counting them out entirely that that doesn't happen too. So I think there's a lot of moving pieces still, you know, kind of in at play. And obviously that resurvey is a part of that, um, you know, on, on what we're looking at. But I do know here in Michigan, you know, a lot of the acres are are off. I mean, I do have some folks that are still struggling with getting their, their harvest wrapped up, but there are fewer than, you know, than most, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And although I had a chance to speak with a grower in central Illinois who's still got 600-some acres of corn standing in the field in central Illinois. Interesting. Just had a hard time getting it off because of the moisture? Just didn't have room to take it or just? Yep, yeah, it was moisture. He had a little trouble, you know, had some uh, some dryer issues, had, you know, mm-hmm. machines get stuck at harvest and just everything oh, kind yeah. of snowballed. Just and then the it's perfect just never storm. frozen enough that they've yeah. been able to really get out there and run. Guys in North Dakota that we work with have been running for the past month yeah. as ground yeah. was finally firm. But this guy, you know, he's like, eh, we're just going to have to wait and see uh, how much is yep. actually still standing when they are able we'll to get the combines out there. Angie, I'll, yeah. before we move on, I want to get your thoughts on a marketing tactic. And this is one that producers and brokers either love or hate. But we've had a tremendous sell-off in corn and soybeans in particular over the past week. We saw call options get very cheap. In your mind, Mm -hmm. was this an opportunity to purchase some courage calls to allow growers to make those marketing, cash marketing decisions a little bit earlier in the year? Or what do you think? If it it takes you, if if that's what it takes to help you feel comfortable in selling, then, you know, have at it, I guess. I mean, I, I... one of the things that I always look at when it when it comes to farmers is we always focus on, you know, the 20,000 bushel that we're, we're looking to sell and completely ignore the 80,000 that's also sitting in the bin that you're long on, you know. And, and so I think, you know, I, I, I get the, the idea that, you know, I want to remain long just in case this board rallies. And, and I'm going to tell you outright here the last several years, I mean, I think we're going on three years now. This year is the first year that we I didn't see a lot of folks really get after it where we did get a downturn and everyone wanted to own a call in, in February and they ended up just, you know, basically wasting their money on, on that idea. And so I think, you know, some folks are burnt out on that. If it helps you, fine, factor it into your net price overall. But I think the biggest thing is is in this current market structure especially is to be aware that, you know, you're, if you're buying inputs for next year, you're long a crop. If this board rallies, you're, you're gaining on that. If you've got, you know, if you're making a 20,000 bushel sell, if you're selling – scale selling as you should, um, you know, using incremental sales values on a a chunk of your bushels, then you're still long. And so I've kind of started phrasing my conversation differently with my growers as as opposed to saying, how much do you have sold? Like I used to, the question really should be how much is unsold? Mm. Because that's where your risk lies. You know, I, I, I have not watched anyone go broke 
um, by selling and then watch the market go up 20 cents. But I've watched plenty of people go broke by not selling and watching the market drop 70, you know, and so that's really the the biggest thing I think we need to, to be aware of, especially in the corn market, based on what we're seeing. Now, obviously, nothing's guaranteed, and we're a long way from having this crop, the new crop in the bin, especially. Um, but I, I do get nervous that we have these ideas that we're, you know, we're, we're going to have to see a rally. And I feel like we've been thinking that since July of last year, like this thing's going to rally, it's going to rally eventually, and, and here we sit. But if it helps you, if it's something that makes you feel comfortable in, in making a profitable sale, then, you know, do what you got to do. Angie, as we turn our attention over into the cattle complex specifically, was there recovery? Was it just a recovery day today or something else driving the markets higher? You know, I would say it was a recovery day. I think it goes back to the idea that, you know, people are still going to eat. Um, you know, even if you want to say that, that exports are down or cash cash uh, prices are lower or something of that nature, I think demand remains. Now, we have seen weight start to creep up, which is a little concerning. You know, I always joke, I used to joke with Mike, you can't put cattle in the bin, you know, but it seems like people sure are trying, um, you know, with, with kind of keeping them out of the market structure, which is understandable. But I, I think that, you know, you can can only beat this thing down for so long before you recognize the underlying fundamentals remain. And, you know, we do see a, a bit of a, a pop back to the high side. So I, I think, you know, I hope it's a, a an indication of what's coming here from a long-term standpoint, especially for the cattle feeders that are struggling you know, feeder costs continue to go higher, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm hoping it's an indication of things to come. All right. Hoping an indication of things to come. I was on the phone earlier with a producer out of Minnesota who was curious about hogs. I think you're right. This coronavirus thing, we're going to get a handle on it at some point. We're seeing China mm -hmm. still have a decimated hog herd due to African swine fever. That continues to be an issue across Southeast Asia. Why aren't hogs starting to move? No, I think that the, the reality is, you know, they've been, again, <laughs> beat down for so long that they, they have to kind of turn themselves around. And I do believe that once China gets back up on their feet and is up and running, you know, I've been one of the people that has said, you know, for quite some time now, and, and to some people have rolled their eyes on it, you know, but the reality is, I think both the coronavirus and ASF are, are bullish um, long term. I think for one, you you bullish ASF bullish for soybean meal and and soybean demand, and I think uh, coronavirus is bullish for actual hog demand in the sense that I think you see a modernization of both diets, both for the hogs that China China is feeding and for the uh, people you know the the Chinese citizens there. I think you'll see some you know significant crackdowns on those wet markets that they had with the the delicious bat soup offering and, and things of that nature. So I, I do think once we get our arms around this and kind of recognize what's taking place, I think you'll see a, a shift in a lot of the, the potential diets, you know, going forward for both the hogs that they're feeding and, and the people. Well, it's going to be a, what I call kind of a pivotal time. It's interesting to watch seeing those diets change in particular. Yes, for sure. Angie, before we let you go, as we mentioned, you are a very active Twitter user, but besides your handle at Goddess of Grain, how else can folks get a hold of you if they'd like to pick your brain on any of these things or more? Yeah, you can email me at acepter at citizenselevator.com, or you can find me on my blog at thebusinessendoffarming.com. All right. Well, Angie Setzer, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me.
Well, folks, that's Angie. Always a good discussion. Great points, great things to consider when we're looking at managing risk in these markets, Delaney. Absolutely, Mike. There's a, no lack of volatility as of late, which I think makes it more exciting. But It does. It makes it more exciting and it provides opportunities. Flat markets, you know, don't provide a lot of opportunities for producers to actively manage their risk. Markets that are moving do. Uh, whether or not we take those opportunities or we grab the bull by the horns, that's up to each individual producer. But at least the chances there did make some things happen. Absolutely, Mike. Well, we're always making things happen here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, chatting with great folks, great representatives of agriculture like Angie Setzer. So be sure to check out all of our past episodes. You can find us online at agnewsdaily.com or you can check us out on pretty much any of your podcasting apps. While you're there, go ahead and hit subscribe. Leave us a rating or a review. Let us know what we're doing well, what we could be doing better, or what topics you'd like us to tackle. Fantastic, folks. Check all of that out. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.